My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. And you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. Here, 1929. In 1929 Rose Bowl game, I don't know if any of you were there. Um, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets took on the University of California Golden Bears. And uh, midway through the second quarter, uh, Roy Regals, he was a Cal, Cal, uh, Cal player, Roy Regals scooped up a Georgia Tech fumble and began running for the end zone. Uh, but for some odd reason, as he dodged a Georgia Tech tackler, he got turned around and he started running in the opposite direction. He started, there he is, he started running toward the Georgia Tech end zone. Now, all the Cal fans were just going crazy, and they're yelling at him, you know, smaller stadium then, and people a little more closer to the action. So they're yelling at Roy to stop, uh, yelling out in vain, really, for him to, to, uh, to stop running in the, in the direction he's running in. And then there was Graham uh, McNamee, who was the radio announcer, calling the game. And he could not believe what he was seeing. And he's like, what is wrong with me? He, he's shouting into the microphone, what is wrong with me? What am I seeing? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Am I crazy? Uh, one of Roy's uh, uh, teammates, Benny Loam, who was on the field at the time, saw what was happening. And he raced after Roy, yelling at him, stop, Roy, stop. You're running in the wrong direction. And he eventually caught him on the third yard line. <laughs> And, but a few Georgia Tech players also caught up with him as well, and they tackled him on the one-yard line. And then on the very next play, uh, they blocked a punt. Georgia Tech blocked a punt for two-point safety and ended up winning the game and the national championship as well. And then along the way, Roy earned the infamous nickname, Wrong Way Regals. Now, you know that for the last few weeks now, we have been studying Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if we had an opportunity, if it was possible for us to rename the letter of Galatians, here's what we would call it. We would call it Paul's letter to the wrong way Galatians. See, let me explain. If you, if you remember, um, Paul, uh, Paul is writing to a group of churches that are located in the Roman province of Galatia, which today is, is the nation of Turkey. But back then, it was part of the Roman Empire. And Paul's first missionary journey took him into the area, or took him through the area, and he founded four churches. He founded uh, Antioch, Pisidia, uh, Lystra, Derby, and Iconium. 
And you read about it in Acts chapters 13 and, and 14, the whole story of how uh, Paul founded the churches there. Uh, but these churches started off their Christian life well. If you remember Galatians chapter 1 verse 9, uh, they believed the gospel. They received, Paul said that they had received the gospel that he had preached to them. Uh, what that means is that they believed the good news. He, he comes into this area announcing that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. Uh, he's died for the sin of the world. He was buried. He was raised to life. And he grants eternal life and forgiveness to anyone who believes. And here he is announcing this message. And they believed it. Uh, now, probably what he was doing, if you remember from the book of Acts, what he was doing was going into the synagogues, uh, Jewish synagogues there, and sharing this message. So there was both Jews and Gentiles. And, and they came to faith in Christ. So they had a, there's a solid gospel foundation that had been laid in Galatia. But these Christians were also running well. Uh, uh, in their Christian life, not not in the sense of like a business is running well, uh, but in the sense that they were living their Christian life well. They were very healthy Christians. Uh, if you remember, the Bible uh, tells us that oftentimes describes the Christian life as a race. Uh, here's one of the passages here, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, <clears throat> therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And here it is. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. Paul also talks about a race in 1 Corinthians 9, and he talks about his own personal race as, as an apostle. But the Christian life is often described as being a race, that we are runners and we're racing and we're racing toward the, the finish line when we meet Christ. The Galatians were actually doing a very good job, believe it or not. And if you see here in chapter 5, he says, you were running the race so well, right? There's a solid foundation. They're running the Christian life well. If we were to, um, to put it in sunrise terms, they had been connected to a relationship with a God who loves them by believing the gospel. And they were also growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ and growing in their relationship with others. I mean, this, these four churches were fulfilling God's vision for the church, a group of men, women, and children of all ages and all backgrounds who love Jesus Christ with all their heart, soul, and mind, and they love each other in the same way that they love themselves. So they were doing a fantastic job, a phenomenal job. But somewhere along the way, the Galatians became the ancient version of, of Roy Riggles. They started running in the wrong direction. So here's what happened. Back in that day, uh, in Paul's day, uh, there was a group of Jewish teachers who were called Judaizers. Now, the word Judaizer comes from a Greek word that means to live according to Jewish customs. Now, New Testament, you know, writers, scholars, commentators disagree about, you know, the spiritual state of these, these individuals. Some say, well, they, weren't un they were unbelievers, they didn't believe in Jesus. Some say that they were probably Jewish Christians who were trying to make sense of their new faith in Jesus Christ. And what do we do with the law? And what do we do? with, you know, like circumcision and all those things. I think these were probably Christians. These were probably some of the Jewish Christians in those synagogues that Paul had led to Christ, along with, uh, with some of the God-fearing Gentiles. And so here they are. They've lived their entire life under the Mosaic Law. They realize that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. And now they're trying to make sense of what do we do with this old life that we used to have in the Old Testament? And how do we relate this now to, to our uh, new faith in Jesus? Jesus Christ. Well, unfortunately, what these uh, teachers were doing, uh, they were teaching that if you want to become a Christian, uh, 
you have to add circumcision and obey the Mosaic law. You see, what they were doing is they were telling others, and Paul had gone in, he had taught this gospel of grace, he taught it was faith alone and Christ alone. And now these Judaizers were telling people, well, you can have your faith in Jesus, that's true, you have to believe in him, but if you want to be fully accepted by God, you have to be circumcised and you have to conform to the Mosaic law. Now you can imagine how Paul felt when he heard about this um, and he heard about what was going on in Galatia and now you've got these Christians who are running so well. He said you were doing such a fantastic job. You're running the right race and now suddenly they're the ancient version of Roy Riggles. Roy Riggles 1.0. Right? They, they're now running in the wrong direction. Actually, you know what? They're not even really, if, you, if, if we were to, to really look at it, you could even say they're not just running in the wrong direction. They're actually running a different race now. It's not the same race that they started off with, uh, with the Apostle Paul. Listen to this. There's a story of a world-class female runner who was invited to compete in a road race in Connecticut. And on the morning of the race, she was driving from New York City, following the directions that someone had given to her over the phone. And along the way, she got lost, and she stopped off at a gas station for help. The station attendant there that morning knew of a race that had been scheduled just up the road, so he directed her to to that place. And so she drove up the road. She found it. She was relieved to see that there were some runners in the parking lot, not as many as she had been led to believe um, when she was invited to the race. But she rushed up to uh, to the registration table. She was running late. The race is about to begin. She ran up to the registration table, and, and she announced herself as a competitor to the competitor for the race. And she was surprised that the race officials were so excited to see such a renowned athlete being part of their race. So they checked their books. They didn't have any, any information on it. They didn't have any entry for it, but they gave her a number anyway. She went to the starting line. The race started, and she won. She easily won the race. She was four minutes ahead of the second-place finisher. It was only then when there was not a prize or a performance money that was handed to her at the end, only then did she realize that she did not run the race that she had been invited to. She learned that the race she had been invited to was actually a few miles up the road over in another town. She was in the wrong place, and she ran the wrong race, and she missed out on a very valuable prize. See, the Galatian Christians started off really well, They had a solid gospel foundation that had been laid by the Apostle Paul. They were running very well. They loved Jesus with all their heart, soul, and mind. They were loving each other. They were so healthy. But then somewhere along the way, they bought into this other message. It's Jesus plus something else. It's Jesus plus circumcision. It's Jesus plus the Mosaic law. And not only are they now running in the wrong direction, they're now running an entirely different race. In fact, they're running an Old Testament race. They're running a very obsolete race when you think about it. If you remember, the Old Testament race actually came to an end the very moment that Jesus died. And when he was raised to life, it began a new race. These Christians are now running a completely different race. 
Word gets back to the Apostle Paul, and, and he's, he's, he's about to explode when he finds out what's going on. If you remember the first chapter of Galatians, he's extremely angry over this new gospel that was being preached and, and extremely angry over what was going on. In fact, he said, if anyone preaches another gospel to you, let them be accursed. I mean, that's some pretty strong language. He doesn't say it once. He says it twice just in case they didn't get it. You know, there's only one gospel, and, 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 and Paul said it's the gospel that I received directly from Jesus. That's the one I passed on to you. And so he's completely upset at, at, at what's happening here. And, and what happens is that Paul actually becomes kind of like the ancient version of Benny Loam. You remember the guy in the story at the beginning of the message who sees uh, uh, Roy running, Roy Regal's running in the opposite direction. He chases after him. He's shouting at him, Roy, stop, stop, you're running in the wrong direction. Well, now the Apostle Paul has become Benny Loam 1.0. And now he's running, as you see here in in Galatians 3, he's now running behind the, the Galatians, telling them to stop. He says here, O foolish Galatians, who has cast an evil spell on you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear were made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. You remember the announcer I was telling you about, Graham McNamee, who was calling the Rose Bowl game, and, and uh, he, he couldn't believe what he was seeing. And three times he says, am I crazy? Well, the Apostle Paul is saying, are you crazy? Galatians, are you insane? Are you foolish? I mean, you... Who has cast an evil spell on you? You see, Paul is is looking and hearing what has happened, and and he says they can't possibly be thinking correctly. Uh, They they can't possibly be rational. There's no no explanation for the decisions they're making to live the kind of Christian life that they're living. In fact, Paul says, he said, look, the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on a cross. In other words, Paul's saying, I explained the death of Jesus Christ so clearly, uh, so fully, and so vividly, it's as if you were there and you can hear Jesus taking his last breaths on the cross. You clearly understood what was communicated to you. And you believed in him. He said in, in, in chapter 1 that they, they believed in him. They, they accepted the gospel. And so now Paul is just completely baffled at the decisions that they're making. It's now Jesus plus something else. So in an effort to try to shake some sense into them and to pound some sense into their head, Paul asks a series of questions. Look at what he said in verse 2. He said, listen, let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message that you heard about Christ. Now remember, when he talks about this Holy Spirit and and receiving the Holy Spirit, for Paul, receiving the Holy Spirit was a mark that you fully belong to Jesus Christ now, that you belong to God. It was the evidence that you are fully accepted by God. Remember Romans 8, 9, when Paul was writing to the Roman church in Romans 8, 9, he said, if you have the spirit of God living within you, you belong to him. And so Paul is is saying here, listen, how did you get the Holy Spirit? It wasn't the law of Moses. You remember that if if these these individuals that he had led to Christ, they were part of the Jewish synagogues that were in these different cities. So they had been under the Mosaic law all of their life. These Gentiles, these God-fearers had come along, and so they had been under the Mosaic Law as well. And they should have known that not one time did God ever pour out His Spirit on them for keeping the Mosaic Law. 
It was because they believed the message that they heard about Jesus Christ. It was an incredible thing that happened to them. And then, and then he goes on to say in verses 3 through 4, he says, look, how foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect in the flesh? Have you experienced so much for nothing? Surely it was not in vain, was it? See, he said, um, you know, you, you started off your new life in the spirit. You received the Holy Spirit. You started off this new race. And now take a look at this. Now you're trying to become perfect. See that word perfect there? It, it carries the idea of, of bringing something to completion. In other words, he's saying you're trying to bring something to completion in the flesh. And that's right there. He's talking about circumcision. And what he's saying here is this. Listen, you've already become a child of God because you have the Holy Spirit. And now you're you're trying to uh, to seal the deal or you're trying to, you know, finish the transaction in your flesh by submitting the circumcision. Because these Judaizers were telling them, listen, you can have your faith in Christ, but you're not really fully accepted until you become a Jew. And the way that you do that is circumcision and conforming to the Mosaic law. Paul said, how thick-headed can you be? After all I explained to you, after all you saw that, that, that happened there in Galatia, and, and I, I explained Jesus so, so clearly to you, it's as if you could hear him breathing on the cross. He says, you've experienced all of this stuff, and was it all for nothing? Look at the next verse. He said, let me ask you again. Does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message that you heard about Christ. And when God poured out his spirit, he obviously poured it out in a dramatic way that the Galatians realized that something new was happening, that this was a a new era and that the message was true, that that Jesus really is the son of God, that he really did die on the cross for his sins and that he has really risen from the dead. And if anybody believes in him, they have eternal life. God confirmed that message by pouring out his spirit upon them and performing all of these miracles. And Paul goes, did that happen for nothing? Did that happen because you were obeying the law and you were observing the sacrifices and you were observing all the festivals? He said, no, it happened because you believed a simple message. If you remember back in the, um, back in the Old Testament days, if you, uh, if you remember the story in, in Genesis 12, um, God appeared to Abraham and he made a covenant with Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic Covenant. And, and the word covenant just simply means an agreement or a commitment or, or a guarantee that you make. Um, you probably heard people describe marriage as being a covenant. You know, 14 years ago, I, I committed myself to one person. I told Michelle that, you know, for better or for worse, to death do us part, you are extremely lucky to have me. And <laughs> No, I said, no, I'm, I'm exclusively devoted to you. It was a, it's a covenant. It's a guarantee that I made her. Uh, made to her, you know, until death do his part. And that's kind of what God did with Abraham. And here's what he did. He said, listen, so Abraham was in his 80s at the time. Sarah was in her 70s. They were childless. And God said to her, said, listen, I'm going to provide you a descendant. I'm going to give you a son. In fact, he says, listen, Abraham, come outside. Let me show you something. He says, look up in the star. Look up in the sky. You see all those stars? Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars. Do you remember what happened next? 
Abraham simply believed what God said to be true. That's all he did. He just simply believed that it was true. And what happened afterwards? God counted him as righteous. He justified him at that moment. You know what's so cool and neat about that story? If you were to back up from Genesis 15 and go to Genesis 12, you remember when God called Abraham to leave his homeland? And he said, I'm, I'm going to take you to another land. I'm going to be this, you know, he made all these promises to him. And Abraham obeyed him and he followed him. Do you realize not one time was Abraham ever declared righteous because of his obedience? It was only in Genesis 15 when he believed the simple message that I'm going to provide a descendant for you. So God said, I'm going to provide all these things for you. Abraham believed it was true. Now, the word believe simply means to be persuaded or convinced that something is true. He was convinced that what God said was going to actually happen. And God put him in a right relationship with him. He was immediately justified. Now, you know what happened afterwards. Abraham goes and he fathers a child with, uh, with Hagar. They named the child Ishmael. And then 13 years later, Abraham asked God for Ishmael to inherit those promises. You remember he said, you know, God, I, I, these blessings, these things that you promised me, I want you to give these to Ishmael. And what did God say? That's not how it works. You see, you try to achieve my promises, my blessings through your own effort. You went and fathered a child with someone who could have a child. And now you want to bring this child to me and you're, you're asking me to give the blessings to that child. I said, Abraham, that's not how it works. I'm going to provide a child for you. You made a name for yourself with Hagar, but I'm going to make a name for myself through Sarah. And so he says, I'm going to give you a child. You're going to father a child through Sarah. At this point, Abraham's 99 years old. Sarah's 90 years old. And so you can imagine just how absurd that sounded, right? You remember when he told Sarah and she laughed about it? It's just absolutely absurd. But God was going to make a name for himself. Now, here's the, here's the, the, the part where he, he tells Abraham, he says, listen, I want you and every descendant after you to be circumcised. Now, at the time, it probably didn't make much sense because there's nothing unique to the Jews about circumcision. Even people around them were circumcised as well. But when Sarah became pregnant and she gave birth to Isaac, it became apparent why God was asking them to be circumcised. You see, because after all of that, at, you know, after Isaac grows up and then he has descendants and so forth, when, when each uh, male descendant of Abraham, they could see in their own flesh that they were the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Not only that, each time they could see in their own flesh a reminder that God will fulfill the promises that he has made, that he is absolutely trustworthy, and that you can take him at his word. It also reminded them that anyone who had the same faith as Abraham would share in the blessings that he received by faith. So you see, this, this act of circumcision and these things that they were putting on people, it was never meant to put people in a right relationship to God. It was simply a sign and agreement that God had made and it pointed to his faithfulness that he can be trusted in whatever he has to say. And so Paul is completely upset and you can understand why he's so upset about, about what's going on here. Now take a look at this. Verses, um, verses 6 and 7. In the same way, Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of what? Because of what he did? Because of his obedience? No, it was because of his faith. The real children of Abraham then are those who put their faith in God. Verse 8. 
What's more, the scriptures look forward to the time when God would make the Gentiles right in his sight because of their faith. God proclaimed this good news to Abraham long ago when he said, all nations will be blessed through you. And then he says in verse 9, so everyone who puts their faith in Christ shares the same blessings that Abraham received because of his faith. Now you see here what was going on in this town that these Judaizers were actually robbing God's people of their assurance that they belonged to him. Paul is reminding them, he said, look, all the way, going all the way back to Abraham, God has always justified people on the basis of faith, not on the basis of any works, not on the basis of works preceding faith, and not on the basis of any works coming after faith. God establishes a right relationship to people by simply believing what he has said about Jesus. And these Judaizers have come in. They've robbed people of their assurance because what they're telling them is this. Your faith in Jesus is not enough to put you in a right relationship with him. You've also got to be circumcised. You've also got to conform to the Mosaic law for the rest of your life. And that will put you in a right relationship. You know, that is not very different from some of the things that we hear today. Right? People will tell you. I remember some missionaries from another from another religion had come to my door one day and they were trying to convince me about their message about Jesus. And, and as we were talking um, about the message, I said, listen, answer me this question. Am I right with Jesus simply by believing he's the son of God? I said, no, actually, it's your faith plus being baptized. Or it's your faith in, in you know, taking communion. Or it's your faith in Jesus Christ and the sacraments and whatever it may be. I mean, we hear that nowadays. It's, it's not just our faith in Jesus Christ, but it's also something else that we do along with it. And now we have actually prominent evangelical pastors. People have been preaching for 20, 30, 40, some for 50 years. And, and they're teaching people this. They're saying, listen, you can, you can have your faith in Christ. You, you can be initial. This is the words they're using. You get this. You believe in Jesus. You are initially justified. You are initially put in a right relationship with God. But you have to have a lifetime of godliness and holiness and producing the fruit of the Spirit to get into heaven. Does, does that sound confusing? You are initially in a right relationship with God. But if you don't have the necessary works to confirm your faith, well, then you don't get into heaven. Right? You're either justified or you're not. Right? You're either pregnant or you're not. Right? <laughs> There's nothing in between that I know of. Right? And, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not that you believe in Jesus and then, yeah, okay, you've got that, you got that faith in Jesus. That's great. That's where it starts. But... Who knows if you're a Christian? You've got to live your entire life obeying him, taking up your cross, following him. And if you do that to the very moment that you die, well, then you get into heaven. There was a, another prominent pastor that I heard. I was, I was watching a conference not too long ago, and it was uh, on the stage. There was about six or seven of these well-known, well-known pastors. And one of them has a radio program. And I could not believe my ears when he said, you know, I've been a Christian for so long, but I'm not sure that I'm a Christian. He says, the only assurance that I have that I'm a Christian is if I obey for the rest of my life until the point that I die. Isn't that unbelievable? Listen, assurance that you are a believer, assurance that you belong to him is a privilege of each and every Christian. It is part of your birthright. 
You see, nothing you can do. Listen, all the taking up your cross and following Jesus and being committed to him and loving him above all other things, that's everything you do after becoming a Christian. It has no bearing on whether or not you get into heaven. That is faith alone in Christ alone. No works. When it comes to discipleship, yes, it has everything to do with following Jesus. And and the reason we do that is, you know, God rewards that kind of obedience at the end, that, that good use of our lives, that good stewardship of our Christian life. But to be put in a right relationship with him has nothing to do with obedience. It is simply believing something to be true about Jesus. That is what puts you in a right relationship with him. Take a look at this. What exactly, here's the question. What exactly do we have to believe about Jesus? Take a look at this. This is one of my favorite passages, by the way. I love, I love this. Let me just set the scene for you. It's at the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Jesus has been arrested. He's standing before the Jewish high priest. And I love this. The high priest asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah? The Son of the Blessed One? What did Jesus say? I am. And look at this. And you will see the Son of Man seated in the place of power at God's right hand, coming on the clouds of heaven. You know what he's saying there? Say, listen, yes, I am the Son of, I, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, but also this, I'm seated, you will see the Son of Man seated at the place of power. He's also saying, oh, by the way, I'm the one that Daniel is talking about in Daniel chapter 7. He said, not only am I the son of God, I'm the one Daniel's talking about. I'm also the one that David is talking about in Psalm 2. I'm all of them. You know, and they knew exactly what he was saying because if you continue reading that story, you remember the high priest who ripped his clothes and they're shouting blasphemy and everybody's flipping out because of what he said. Because they clearly understood what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be the long-promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Take a look at this. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes has eternal life. Now, does he say anyone who believes you initially have eternal life? But if you're going to get the real deal, we've got to make sure you obey for the rest of your life. Does he say that? No, he says you actually have something right then and there as you believe. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Take a look at this next one. But to all who believe in him and accept him, he gave the right... To become children of God. I've read this text a hundred times and never once have found the word probation in there. Everyone who believes in him and accepts him, they go into a probation period. And if you meet the requirements of discipleship for the rest of your life, we might let you in. No, he says immediately you have the right to become a child of God. You know, I have a friend of mine who um, I I grew up with in in Alabama, and he has struggled with his assurance as a Christian. And uh, he's he's kind of, uh, you know, to use the old Southern expression, I don't think you use it here, but, you know, he's walked the aisle four times. And uh, he's gone forward. I've been there a few times when it's happened. He's gone forward. The pastor, you know, preaches a message and then he, you know, he gives the invitation. He tells people to come forward to read, you know, to, to receive Christ. He'll go forward because he feels guilty about his sins. Tells the pastor he wants to become a Christian. Two weeks later, he's baptized. And then three years later, he does it again because he's not sure of his salvation. So he goes forward again because he's feeling guilty about, about the sin in his life. And he's got people in his life telling him, well, you do this and you do this and you do this. So you must not be a Christian. 
So then he goes forward, you know, he gets saved again, he gets baptized again, and then he did it a third time. You know, again, he's feeling guilty over sin. He's got people in his life telling him, well, you're not really a Christian because you're doing this and you're doing that. You know, putting his focus on all of his works and saying that shows you're not really a Christian. So now you, you, I guess it didn't work the other three times. And so I, I remember talking with him one night and I can remember the tears in his eyes. And I can still hear the exhaustion in his voice and see the exhaustion on his face. And I remember him telling me, Mark, I'm going to go forward again, and maybe this time it will work. Maybe this time it will work. Listen, your faithfulness in following Jesus has nothing to do with whether or not you get into heaven. That is by faith alone in Christ alone. Your faithfulness has everything to do with discipleship. It has everything to do with living a victorious Christian life. It has everything to do with seeing God's favor in that way in your life. It has everything to do with with the rewards that God gives faithful Christians at the end, you know, standing at the judgment seat and, and being rewarded for our stewardship. That is the proper place. But whatever you do after becoming a Christian has no bearing on whether or not you get into heaven. You see, my friend and what he was doing that time... He's looking at all of his works. He's looking at all this stuff that he's doing. And he concludes, I must not be a Christian because I don't seem to be following Jesus too well. You see, what determines whether or not you're a Christian and that you truly, fully belong to God has nothing to do with what you do, but it has everything to do with what you believe about Jesus. Okay, make sure you get this today that the word believe simply means to be persuaded and convinced that something is true. And the moment that you are convinced that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, you have everlasting life. That's all it is. There's just something inside of us, in our DNA, that wants to bring something to the table and wants to contribute something to that gift. It is so hard for us sometimes just to believe it's that easy. There's a pastor recently who preached a message how hard it is to become a Christian. Telling people it is so difficult for someone to become a Christian. It's not difficult at all. It's just simply believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Next time you read the Gospel of John, take a look at chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. The reason John wrote the Gospel of John is to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. He said, listen, all he said, these things have been included in this Gospel, the one that he wrote. He said, these things have been included so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing that, you have life in his name. That's all it is, is simply to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Maybe you're here today and you have lived your Christian life under this heavy yoke of not being assured that you're a Christian. Maybe you've been looking to your works. Or you know what, maybe you failed in your Christian life. Maybe somewhere along the way you failed in your Christian life and now you're questioning whether you're a Christian. Uh, maybe you're looking at your works and you say, you know what, I'm, I'm not really very, I haven't been very good at following Jesus. Maybe I'm not a Christian after all. I hope that today you will lay aside that burden and you will put on the easier yoke of the gospel of grace. Jesus simply said, believe in me. Be convinced and persuaded that I am the son of God and you already have eternal life. You see, assurance is a birthright. It's a privilege of Christians. And you're never going to make progress in your Christian life until you settle that issue that you truly belong to him. 
relying simply on the promise that God or Jesus gives eternal life to anyone who believes in him. Maybe you're here today and you're without Christ. And you want to know how to have a relationship with God. Maybe you, you want to be connected to a relationship with a God who loves you. Or maybe you're thinking, you know what, I don't know if, if I've sinned too much and God will accept me. I talked to a man one time. I shared the gospel with him. And as we were sitting there talking, he said, Mark, it's too late for me. There's just too much sin in my life. Listen, Jesus died for the sin of the world. You know what that means? That means what he died for on the cross covers everything that you have done. There is no sin that's going to be outside of the cross, the scope of the cross. Jesus paid for it. He was punished for it. He rose from the dead to prove that God has accepted his sacrifice. And it vindicates his message that if you'll believe in him, you'll be forgiven and you'll have the free gift of eternal life. I hope today will be the day that you settle that. We're going to have some people over here after the service. Brad will be here and others in the prayer room. And they can show you how to have a right relationship with him. If you're unsure of your salvation, you say, you know, one time I I did that. I, I thought I believed in Jesus. They can help you to be assured of your salvation as well. But understand this, the reason why Paul was so upset in the letter of Galatians is because it's Jesus plus nothing for eternal life. It's Jesus plus nothing for justification and for forgiveness of sins and for being right with God. Father, we just want to thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. Just the simplicity of this message and that it it is nothing that we bring to the table. Father, you know that our works are so imperfect. Even for the most faithful Christian, they are very well aware of their, their failings. They are very well aware of their sin. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have made it so simple, simply to accept what Jesus, uh, what Jesus has said about himself, to believe that he truly is your son, that he is the Messiah, and that we will have everlasting life. Father, there's just something so ingrained within us that we, we want to bring something to the table and to, to contribute something to our salvation because it makes us feel better. It makes it seem like we really are Christians and we really belong to you. Father, I pray today that we will rest simply on the promises of Jesus, that if we believe in him, we are in fact your child. Father, if there's people here today who are without Christ, I just ask right now that you would draw them to the cross. You would bring them to Jesus and let today be the day that they experience the the freedom of forgiveness, the freedom of knowing that you are no longer angry with them, that they're now your sons and daughters that you've given them the Holy Spirit, they're in a right relationship, and that you love them dearly. Father, thank you for all that you've given to us. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.